Hello and welcome, you lucky, lucky people, you. It's time for another episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of the historians to which the title alludes, Dr. Radness. <laughs> I would be the second. Yeah, that's right. Dr. Greenfield. Together, we're still only partial historians. <laughs> you know, you know, you can't cover everything. We do our best, we do our best. Okay, so to celebrate our 60th episode, we're having a little bit of a break from our narrative in which we were tracing the founding of the city of Rome. Onwards. Onwards, yes. <laughs> and we're looking at some films uh, that are kind of about ancient Rome on film. They're kind of about the making of movies about ancient Rome. <laughs> I feel like we're getting pretty meta at this point, but uh, yeah, yeah. let's face it. Hail Caesar sounds like it's going to be a film about Rome. That's <laughs> We couldn't help but go and see it. And therefore, we thought we'd do a special review for you today. Mm, a historian's perspective yeah. on Hail Caesar, Roman film, anything else to do with Hollywood. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Things that we know, things that we don't know. This is obviously uh, Dr. Radness's special area, not mine. We get, um, we're getting out of my specialty with Hail Caesar, I think, a little bit. Like, <laughs> it, it, is, it is and it isn't. It is, it is about so much more than Roman film, this Movie. It is, yeah, it is. Yeah. But I only want to talk about Roman film. Right oh, now. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. So we'll much see how long that lasts. So much for that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, so first off I'm gonna say I was very excited to see this movie. Um and I think because I was so excited, I was a little bit underwhelmed when I actually saw oh, it. Oh no. I know. Listeners, now if you enjoyed the film, stop listening no, now. No, I, I did like it. I did like it. But I, I think you know, it's, it's like the classic thing. I was so excited to see it that it couldn't help but kind of let me down a little bit. And why I did Google a few reviews and that sort of thing in preparation for this episode and I, I have a feeling I'm not alone here in thinking that this film was good but not great. I feel like it left some things unfinished and it mm. set up certain situations and characters yeah. and you were waiting for a finale that never arrived. Very common, um, though, isn't it? <laughs> so if we're hailing any particular Caesar, I guess it's Tiberius. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> you know, you know, leaves a little to be desired. My goodness. <laughs> well, I wasn't prepared for that, listeners. I'm somewhat taken aback. But I'm going to just ignore that and classily sail on. <laughs> To talk about the movie. Okay, so for people who haven't seen it, what is this film really about? This film is about some dude in Hollywood having a crisis and then continuing to make films. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The film, I mean, I, could, I can't really say that it revolves around one character. No, it is an ensemble cast yes. and there's clearly a multiplicity of storylines going on. Yeah, but the, the main focus, I think, is definitely the story of... Eddie Mannix, who is a studio fixer, uh, and I'll explain what that means in a sec for those of you who might not know, uh, and Bear Whitlock and his kidnapping. I think they're the main yes, yeah. strands that sort so of tie everything else Whitlock together. Whitlock is an actor who manages to get himself kidnapped, yes. um, and obviously Mannix, as the fixer, has to fix the situation. Exactly, yeah. I mean, um, this, is not something, this is something that the Coen brothers have done before, uh, as in they have made films about the Hollywood system before. Um, they made their um, their most notable sort of um, example of this is Barton Fink, which was a huge critical success, uh, not a big commercial success. Uh, and that was about a similar sort of period, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, and again, I think it was about Capitol Pictures, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, so Capitol Pictures is the studio that is making... Um, well, the studio from which all the stars 
that we get to meet hail from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, ooh. <laughs> ooh. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. what degree is any of this based on reality? Well, I think, you know, capital is obviously meant to stand in for this period where, you know, like we were talking about last episode, this is the era of the great studios. Mm. Okay. Um, and definitely I think you get a, you get a strong feeling of, um, I mean, you, you hear there's, there's been some very clever turns of phrase that, you know, that Hollywood at this point in time was the dream factory. Um, in that they pumped out movies, um, you know, like they were some sort of commercial product, like a car or something like that. They had a very, they had a, they had a system. It was a system. They knew how it worked, and they kept on, you know. There was a production yeah, line. There was a production line pumping out movies. Did, did you kind of get that feeling? Oh yes. From, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think, kind of what. A studio is a factory. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the the era that we're in. Um, I, I kind of felt like it was meant to be sort of the 1950s, this sort of golden age of epics. Um, so it this, did, which makes Capitol sound even more hilarious exactly. as a name for a studio. <laughs> Especially when we consider you know, one of the main hills of Rome. Well, 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 well. Yeah, the Capitol line. Um, but anyway, um, I think it's definitely meant to be obviously um, talking about that era, but this is also the era in which the studios are going to gradually start showing the cracks mm-hmm. that will lead to their demise in the 1960s in terms of them being like a studio system. Um, you know, as in, obviously, the studio still exists. You know, MGM still makes movies. Universal still makes movies. Just not in the same way that they had been doing for so long. You know, since the 1920s, essentially. Um, so this is like the heyday. And but it's they're great. on the cusp. They're really. on the cusp of things not not being so great. Um, Eddie Mannix, the studio fixer. He was he's an interesting character. Uh, and there were so, such people. In fact, there was actually a guy called Eddie Mannix who was the vice president of MGM, and he was a studio fixer. Oh. So Josh Brolin's character would seem to be inspired some, by some allusion to yeah yeah. Um, I mean, he, there actually have been movies about well, sort of based on this same person before because Eddie Mannix was perhaps one of the better known studio fixers because um, he worked at MGM for a while and he was involved in um, various scandals of the time. Like, for example, he um, he was involved with uh, the, the suicide of the original Superman, George Reeves. Oh, goodness. And there was a movie that Ben Affleck made about that called Hollywoodland. Mm-hmm. So he, he has been a character in movies before. All right, pause. Yes. What's a fixer? Basically, in this time where, obviously, it is a studio system, the studios want to protect their product, and one of their products is... Well, is the, the, the stars that are mm. under contract to them okay because yep. you, you've signed a, a star to your studio well done you you've got Clark Gable or whatever on your lot okay that means you get to say what movies he makes when you know you get to loan him out to other studios and you get to tell them what they're going to give you in return you have a lot of power of these people um, but obviously that they are diminished like their, their value is diminished if there's some sort of scandal that tarnishes <gasps> exactly and as we talked about last time this is the 1950s we're talking about Anything's a scandal. Quite a conservative period, yeah. Going to buy a pack of gum is possibly a scandal. <laughs> yeah, so it is quite a conservative period. Um, and so people like Eddie Mannix were basically around to help make sure that any Nobody scandals, found out the truth. Yeah, or, or <laughs> if they did, it went away. Mm. Okay, so Eddie Mannix, the real Eddie Mannix, um, was involved in hushing up, you know, was actually was actually involved in sort of hushing up, you know, car accidents uh, that the stars had while they were drunk and... <laughs> You know, um, he was actually involved in very much the kind of things that you see him doing in this movie. Uh, I don't know if he was quite as busy on a day-to-day basis as he is in L.C., but, you know. 
I think we're looking yeah, at a compressed timeline. Yeah, you get the idea. Um, however, that being said, I'm not saying that this is meant to be like a an exact replica of Eddie Mannix. Well, like, Eddie Mannix. Yeah. yeah. Well, unlike uh, Trombo, which we looked at in the last episode, I think we can firmly say that this is not a biopic. No, definitely not. I mean, the Eddie Mannix of this movie, like, did, what did you feel about him? Did you like him as a, as a person, as a character? Oh, uh, look, I felt like this film... Um, undersold itself in all of the trailers because it ended up being about a character who I didn't care about. Right. <laughs> wow. I was, I was like, no, but seriously, yeah. I, yeah. I'm not interested in somebody with struggling with their possible Catholicism yeah. and what it means to be sinful when you're basically asked to do the job of an underhand person and you enjoy it. It's like, <laughs> yeah. either you get on with it or you don't. <laughs> nice. I don't yeah. really feel heaps of sympathy for you right now. Like, you want to get out? You want to work for Boeing or whatever it is? Just go. Yeah. <laughs> don't have a crisis about it. You're going to earn a lot of money either way. It's pretty clear. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, wow. Right, yes, well... Um, <laughs> Uh, that was that was not <laughs> not what you were expecting. No. Uh, well, I suppose I can then tell you. You might be relieved to hear that I don't think the Relady Mannix did have crises of conscience. Good, like, like is in the much film. more interesting story. Yeah, I think in the movie they were more having him. Uh, I think he was a useful character because he obviously allows you to go to all of the places. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he weaves together. He the serves other a purpose. Yeah, exactly. Um, the real Eddie Mannix, I think, was actually a thug and quite happy to be one. <laughs> in the right role, then. Um, yeah. Um, in fact, he, I mean, if you want to hear more about the real Eddie Mannix, please um, give uh, You Must Remember This another podcast to listen. They have a fantastic episode which runs down Eddie Mannix's various um, doings, including his uh, covering up of a, of a rape at a studio party, um, his potential assassination of his own first wife (laughs) and various other scandals this is not a guy who i think would feel remorse for for being a studio fixer if anything that's probably the least (laughs) (laughs) so you're telling me this is a romanticized version of but the studios did depend on people to have this sort of uh liaison between them and the press um because as you could sort of see with tilda swinton's character (laughs) is meant to be i think a bit of a nod to hedda hopper and luella parsons and those sorts of notorious gossip columnists, they did wield a lot of power because this was the kind of period where studios had to toe a certain line in terms of the morality of their pictures. That's what the whole production code was about. It was very strict about what they were and were not allowed to do. For example, production code era Hollywood, you could never show a bad guy coming out ahead. You always had to show that evil was punished. That was a rule. You had to. Okay, so... This diminishes the complexity of storylines rather sufficiently. Yeah, exactly. And you could only, you know, you also had to watch out for your costuming that wasn't too skimpy, that, you know, you couldn't show, you couldn't talk about suicide or abortion or, you know, that sort of thing. So there were a lot, a lot of things that you had to watch out for in this day and age in the studio system as being part of the production code. And you wanted to stick to that production code. Otherwise, you were going to lose your power to self-regulate the industry. You lost the power to say, well, this is what we're going to do. Okay, and you had people to answer to, like there's a Catholic legion of decency. (laughs) Well, this was one of my favourite scenes in the film. Yeah, yeah. Where Mannix has to meet up with all of these different religious affiliations. That was hilarious. Because he's trying to run a script past them um, that is religious in nature. And and this is where the Hail Caesar aspect of the film comes into play as well. Yeah. Because he wants to get approval to see if it's too religious one way or the other. Yeah. And it turns out that there's a lot of disagreements, but ultimately nobody cares. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, and and this is exactly, this is actually, again, the kind of thing that actually happened. This is, I mean... 
I say that I was underwhelmed by this film, but I actually still love it and appreciate it at the same time because it is a love letter to the films from this era. And I love the films from this era. Okay, I'm a big fan of 1950s movies. I mean, for all the flaws and that sort of thing with having to tell certain types of stories, there are still some amazing movies that come out of this period. Yeah, and I suppose this film does spend a lot of time providing you vignettes of the different styles of film that were being produced in this era. So everything from your great Roman classic yeah. uh, to your synchronised swimming yeah. excellence. Excuse me. Aqua musical. <laughs> Aqua musical. Aqua musical. Uh, <laughs> to uh, your um, general, I, I don't know, it seems like a sailor film with dancing. I don't know. Is that a type of film? It was actually, yeah. Mm. There were there were a few very famous uh, musicals, musicals from this area. Musicals with sailors. Yeah. Well, um, uh, most notably, I suppose, uh, On the Town with uh, Gene Kelly uh, Frank Sinatra oh, in a sailor uniform, so cute. And the other guy who I can never remember because he's not as famous as the other two anymore, anymore. But yeah, they were a trio. Um, and yeah, and on the town was actually kind of a big deal because for the first time in a long time, I think MGM allowed. Um, generally, because this was the studio era, everything was shot on the back lot. You know, the studios owned huge amounts of property where they would um, have all their sets and everything. So you literally could sort of wander, you know, from one one's everyone can interact one genre with to the next yeah, yeah. Uh, and you, you can kind of see that a little bit in singing in the rain as well the way they sort of wander from one you know set to the next and it's all different genres and that sort of thing um so they very rarely uh, um allowed for location shooting it was expensive it was difficult and in their eyes it was unnecessary so a lot of their movies even if they're set somewhere else like meet me in st louis i'm pretty sure it was shot entirely on a set Yep. Um, but yeah, on the town, you, they allowed Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra to go off to New York, which is where they're meant oh to be my goodness. on the town. <laughs> and, you know, as sailors do, meet up with some beautiful broads. <laughs> <laughs> well but, then. But I digress. <laughs> yeah, um, I definitely think this is a love, this movie is obviously a love letter to those sorts of movies, as much as it is also perhaps a bit of a cynical look at the, the business side of movie making. Well, yeah, and I think it also sweeps under some really serious issues under the table. So, yes. like, communism is really dealt Definitely. with in, a, in yeah. a really sort of light-hearted way yeah um with a bit of a submarine um <laughs> a bit of a you haven't seen the movie i don't think you'll know what dr g's talking a about bit of, yeah. a bit of a bit of channing tatum hopping on board with a dog and sailing yeah. off to join the soviets yeah um and you think to yourself look this was a traumatic period of time it was definitely um, yeah and it's really it's it's kind of dealt with with just like a bit of a, a nudge and a wink and we're like well yeah I mean, I, I found it quite amusing, I suppose, because given what we talked about last episode, we were talking about Trumbo, I mean, I, I kind of almost apologise, listeners. It's a very complicated political situation to deal with in one episode. Um, but we gave it our best shot last time. And we sort of talked about the fact that a lot of the people who were um, originally blacklisted were screenwriters. So I appreciate the fact that you had a group of writers... Um, Hiding out in a mansion. Yeah. <laughs> being like, let's yeah. talk this yeah. through. Yeah. But, I mean, funnily enough, actually, we were just talking about this. When I was reading reviews for the for the other movie we talked about last episode, Trumbo, I came across some um, very some reviews of Trumbo in some very conservative American magazines and newspapers, like, from now. And they were sort of talking about how they didn't like the fact that Trumbo was heroizing... Um, you know this guy and you know all his friends who were who were guilty of you know being a member of a an organization that was trying to overthrow American government and instate Soviet style Stalinist 
Well, it strikes me that the same commentators are probably going to be just as displeased with Hail Caesar. Yeah. Because essentially so, what, yeah. what they're the Coen brothers take on the blacklist is a bunch of very smart and witty uh, <laughs> screenwriters. screenwriters sitting in a mansion and plotting to kidnap a famous star in yeah. order to get themselves back in the system. <laughs> yeah. Well, I... Uh, the thing I also find kind of interesting is I wonder if this is a bit of an alliance. Cause one of the one of the precursors potentially to the whole HUAC blacklisting of screenwriters thing, and if you don't know what we're talking about, see previous episode, um, was the the suggestion of um, founding um, an alliance between certain screenwriters where they would have creative control over their own work. And this is perhaps one of the things that really ticked everybody off and smacked of you know, all of these communists have gone too far. <laughs> they want to have creative control. Yeah, no, seriously. Like, the idea that they would sort of band together in some sort of union and seize creative control from the studios, this is actually seen as maybe being one of the big things that leads to what will happen in 1947. Um, so it is actually kind of a... I don't know whether the Coen brothers were deliberately sort of referencing that kind of a, a vibe. Like, the Screenwriters Guild um, and the screenwriters were generally, I think seen as being um the ones that had the most left-leaning members yeah um and yeah as we talked writers about, people who think a lot i know uh, what the? I <laughs> those guys yeah i mean, like, I you, mean do... you can't blame the actors they're just saying the lines <laughs> yeah um but i do find george Clooney's character um quite amusing i think he was meant to be a bit of a nod to robert taylor oh yes how yeah. so well I mean, obviously, the movie itself. Uh, I mean, this is actually sorry. Also, who's Robert Taylor? Yeah. <laughs> maybe that should be my first yeah. question. Robert Taylor was a massive star um, in the early, well, actually, throughout the 1950s, really, but particularly in the early 1950s, and he is the male star in Quo Vadis. Okay. Um, and he is one of the people who testifies in that first round of um, committee hearings in 1947 as a friendly witness. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, okay. not good. Here's, um, again, I'm referencing um, the fantastic work done by the, you must remember this podcast, so check them out. But, yeah, basically he was a huge, huge star. You know, gorgeous, but dumb. You know, pretty much known for that. Um, uh, but he was so, you know, such a matinee idol that um, the his appearance before the committee in the, um, you know, the statements that he made were seen as actually being very influential in the way that the public felt oh, wow. about things happening at that time. And when you actually listen to his entire testimony, it's not as bad as it first sounds. Like, it sounds really bad, me saying, you know, friendly witness, you know, and swaying all these people to be anti-communist and that sort of thing. He actually seems to have been kind of like the studio heads, reluctant to name names, but very into this whole idea of American, being <laughs> American, and being American means being anti-communist and that kind of stuff. Um... So, yeah, I mean, definitely, I'm not saying what he did was good, but I don't think it's perhaps as bad as it yeah. sometimes is. Well, this does be. lead to some sort of comedic episodes for yeah. this Brad Whitlock character yeah, who yeah. gets kidnapped um, and ends up in this room full of what appears to be highly communist screenwriters <laughs> yes, who yeah. are on the lam. Yeah. Um, and he's like, so what is going on? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And that's why it kind of made me think of Robert Taylor because of the mm. whole Quivatis connection. Like, I was already thinking that anyway. And then the fact that Brad Whitlock is seemingly kind of, um, you know, a bit of an empty-headed 
you know, kind of character, and he's <laughs> well, he's he's sort of um, depicted as a sort of character who will be swayed by any reasonable argument at any given time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so he ends up falling in with these communists because yeah. he's been kidnapped by them, and obviously that's bad enough. But eventually they talk him around, and he starts to think that their ideas are all right. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't really take a lot of persuasion. Um, but when he starts to spout those ideas back to Eddie Mannix, when he's yeah. finally discovered, things don't work out so well. No, and I think you can understand why, given what's been happening in Hollywood, that Eddie Mannix's character wouldn't react like that with a, a major we don't, star. We don't want a, uh, a no. star also being a communist. No, but it's the, not the, be ideal. the title of this film, Hail Caesar, is actually Hail Caesar, A Tale of the Christ, which is obviously a nod to <laughs> the 1959 Ben-Hur Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. And you can see clear links yeah. between the final scenes of Hail Caesar Absolutely. and Ben-Hur. Totally, um, This yeah. moment of... Uh, the way of... that it's shot. Yeah. <laughs> the conversion sort of moment. Um... Yeah. And that's why it's all... This is, this is the interesting thing. I, for me, also, that, that final scene, like the conversion moment. Sorry, spoilers. I always do that after I've said the spoiler thing. <laughs> yeah. During that final scene. We should say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... Whitlock is playing a Roman character. Yes. And the Sorry. Romans are yeah, God, this is all the Romans happens, are yeah. fighting against the Christians. Yes. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. Or you know, the Christians are coming under the thumb of Rome. Yeah. Um and in a in a tale of uh woe uh and lengthy sort of emotional correspondence, uh uh the character eventually comes to the realization that Jesus is somehow good. Yeah, exactly. That, that's obviously the thing. And that's obviously paralleling um the convert I mean most of the most of the golden epics of this period are known for having this um, clash between the Judeo Christian culture and the Roman culture. And generally somebody somewhere is converting to the other way of thinking. You yeah. know? Um, generally it's like a Roman character being converted to thinking about being a Christian sort mm. of thing. Um, ben Hur isn't about that though. That's the thing. Ben Hur this is what I mean. Like it was very Ben Hur in the way it was shot the subtitle sort of hints at it being Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur is obviously famous, you know, bigger than Ben-Hur for being such a huge production and a long film and winning, you know, still still hasn't been topped for Oscar wins, you know, the, the 1959 Ben-Hur. Um, so, yeah, definitely you get all that kind of... And also having, you know, like a, a really solid male character is like the male thing. But, <laughs> but the main character in Ben-Hur is Jewish. Mm. He converts to being Christian, but he... Oh, kind of, that's where it's heading. But he's not... A Roman per se. He has an episode where he like you know, experiments with being a Roman, but he, most of the movie he's Jewish, so it's not quite the same thing. And that's why this film also made me think of the robe, mm. okay, which is perhaps one that's not as well known these days. Because I think that I'm not going to pretend to know it. So let me ask the <laughs> question: What is well? This the is why robe. I think this this movie really is a, a melange of of the a lot of the big. Um, epics from this time, the big Roman epics, because, okay, so you've got Quivardus maybe with the whole Robert Taylor connection, uh, maybe, with Baird Whitlock, Robert Taylor, and, you know, the costuming, it certainly seems to suggest that, you know, I love the fact that Roman characters always stride around in, like, full armour, even if they're <laughs> not fighting or anything like that, love it, uh, um, so, yeah, maybe there's a bit of a hint of that there, okay, and Quivardus is obviously a, a, a tale about a clash between Christians and Romans, um, and the Roman character does end up converting because he falls for a Christian maiden, played by Deborah Carr, uh, and that's Robert Taylor's character. Um, but it takes a, he takes a while to sort of get around to it. <laughs> you know. um, but the robe is also is about um, 
uh, a Roman centurion played by Richard Burton. And he's basically there when Christ is crucified, whereas Quo Vadis is set more, it's set towards the end of the reign of Nero, so it's after oh, okay. Christ's death. Whereas the robe is during Christ's lifetime, and it's all about this, this robe, which basically, yeah, Christ's robe. Mm. Oh. Magical robe. Oh. Robe. Yeah. I was trying to figure out, I was like, like, uh... Some sort of robe that you wear out. Yeah, no, you like... know, Richard Burton is your typical, like, you know, arrogant Roman, like, making fun of, you know, the guys being crucified. Massive storm comes along. He touches the robe of Christ and is, like, infected by, by Christianity? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> kind of. What a weird well, film. It kind of, it basically screws up his mind. Oh, okay. You know? okay uh, and he's okay. all conflicted. He doesn't know, yeah, yeah. like, what's going on and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yeah. So the robe is a symbol. The robe is a symbol, yeah. Um, and, and so you, and it, the, the whole movie is about the whole sort of conversion thing. And, and the robe is important because at the time, it was one of those movies, um, Basically, and this is what this is where I come back to that scene that you really liked, where they're talking about um, the the different religious leaders and their opinion on the film and the the subject matter and that sort of thing. They do make reference in that scene to it being like you know they want it to be a weighty film and you know to be taken seriously and it's a prestige picture and that sort of thing. And that's what these epics were all about. They were often involving you know big historical moments and characters and themes because they were seen as being um, big technologically. Like the robe was one of the first, was um, was launching a new technology. The the cinemas, sorry, the studios were launching a new technology to try and win people away from their television sets, win them away from the suburbs where they are now living, <laughs> get them back into the theaters. And so they were doing this by stage, doing something that TV couldn't do. Yeah, yep. yeah. And so this is the era where you see, uh, you know, like three D movies and widescreen technologies of all different types, like really, really experimental technologies. And generally, they pick epics historical epics to launch them because they were seen as being like sufficiently weighty subject matters to put out as epics like epic in every way epic Mm. in the number of cast members epic in the the tone of the picture epic in the size of the picture as in literally on the screen (laughs) um so yeah it it kind of made me think of the road because the robe is really actually the first of these um, these movies to come along. It's one of the first to sort of launch these new technologies and that sort of thing. Quevadas um, and Ben Hur come along later in the decade. So, um, so yeah, it just kind of made me think of the robe for that reason yeah, yeah. as well. And uh, you know, they all have those similar sorts of moments where people are looking up at something, and going, "Oh my god! Oh my god! I finally see the light!" <laughs> but, um, what is that? Yeah, but I, I did like that um, the the scenes, therefore, where they're sort of showing the behind the scenes making of these movies and. Yeah, um, I, I did. I did appreciate that because I could see how it draws a lot. And then, of course, with the communist writers, that's I think a bit of a nod to Spartacus, because Spartacus was the film that broke the blacklist mm. with um, by including Dalton Trumbo's name for the first time in about ooh, thirteen years, I guess, by that stage on screen wow. um, as the writer. So yeah, it's kind of a, a bit of a, a, a mixture of all those. Yeah, things. it's taking all of these elements of the of it the Roman epic bit. and turning it into a new thing. Yeah, which is actually when you think about the fact that, as you said, that's only a small part of this picture, really. Oh yeah, that it's it's kind of crazy because they do also have these other segments where they have like a nod to aqua musicals and Scarlett Johansson's character, obviously meant to be Esther Williams. The famous million dollar mermaid. <laughs> the million dollar the million mermaid. Do- yeah. Yes. Well, she, she, and this is, I, I, again, like, this is where if you, if you like those sorts of movies from that era, you'll appreciate it. Like the very elaborate, um, aqua synchronized swimming musical number that you see in this movie, um, is kind of obviously a nod to what Esther Williams eventually did. Cause Esther Williams was, um, 
She's basically a champion swimmer. She'd been planning to go to the Olympics in 1940, but for obvious reasons, could not. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, and she ended up being um, uh, she ended up being spotted by um, I can't remember who, but someone some studio executive or something um, as she was uh, swimming because she was like champion swimmer with uh, Johnny Weissmuller, who played Tarzan, um, and she and he was also an ex Olympic gold medalist. Oh, okay. Um, so swimming together, and they, he sort of was like, oh, you know what? We're looking for a female star with that kind of gimmick. Um, particularly because one of the other studios had uh, a female ice skater who they used to, uh, Sonia <laughs> we could We could use a swimmer. Yeah, they're like, we, we need something like that to rival this other studio. I mean, this is, this is the studio system, people, at work. And so when she first starts making movies, you know, you generally see her, um, you know, like dive off a really high diving board. But eventually, like, the problem is to get people back into the cinemas. Yes, you keep cranking out the same kind of product in terms of, like, the storyline, but you have to keep adding... More, more flourish more. into yeah. those sequences. You do. Those swimming sequences need to be bigger and better than yeah. they were in the last Oh, time. well, Esther Williams ended up swimming with... Um, she's done sequences with Tom and Jerry. She's done <laughs> with Tom and Jerry. She's done this amazing... She did this amazing sequence, which, again, is kind of kind of ancient history related, in that she's swimming underwater and she sort of um, is swimming around all these Greek statues. And as she touches them, they come to life and become... You know, swim alongside her and that sort of thing. So <laughs> they became absolutely insanely extravagant. Yeah, like the one that you, the one that you see in Hell Caesar is is actually not even the actually worst quite of it. simple. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean it's, it's good, but it's yeah, it's you know they they got even more elaborate than that. So yeah, I appreciated Hell Caesar for all these sorts of reasons. Mm. Um, and I thought it was an interesting addition to um, to see a sort of film that is talking about the making of these sorts of films yeah yeah it's clearly romanticizing things and it's yeah. clearly attempting to have fun with it as well absolutely yeah. um and i there's no doubt that the film is fun yes um, yes i certainly felt like characters like tilda swinton were definitely underutilized and i don't yeah. know i don't know where her story was really going and i kind of wish there was either either there was more or there wasn't there at all because what was the point yeah I mean, she's sort of like this hovering threat but you get no real sense that she's actually gonna no, I, I agree with you there because especially since um, Hedda Hopper is such a force in Trumbo, mm. I kind of I agree with you. I kind of feel like you get the idea about how how, how powerful certain go- gossip columnists could be in this era, but at the same time they they, they you know they did turn they it was sort of understood at this point in time that you would turn the other way when like you know a married man was having an affair and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, it just depended on the type of scandal. I yeah, yeah. But I did like seeing that liaison between the gossip columnists and the studios because of course you know the fan magazines and keeping their stars in the papers for certain reasons is, is totally to their advantage yeah yeah so there's always a contentious relationship there yeah yeah um, and I liked I, I did like all, seeing all the other genres as well which we didn't really talk about like the sort of melodrama the, the western <laughs> you know they were all they, and, and the guy who, actually I have to admit the, the, the guy who played Hobie Doyle was actually probably my favourite character in this movie <laughs> fair enough yeah, um, yeah I I don't know that I have too much to say about that. I mean, I thought it was interesting and I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm curious. Part of me is curious as to why it was called Hail Caesar as opposed to any of the other genres that were in there. This is true. Yeah, I, I guess because the whole kidnapping of Baird Whitlock maybe is the... Is the sort of the central thing that needs to be fixed. Yeah, and it's kind of, I suppose, maybe a bit of an allusion to, I suppose, I don't know whether it's like an allusion to the power of the studio head or, you know, like, so you mm. have to like sort of jump into line and play your part, yep. you know, you have to sort of toe the line or, or not. <laughs> you know, like Channing Tatum obviously defects, you know, in a dramatic fashion. <laughs> I'm out of here, guys. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and, and, you know, and the people who don't toe the line are sort of cussed out. I'm, I'm not sure if it's sort of referring to the sort of 
dictatorial power mm, of perhaps. the studios. But, but yeah, it was an interesting addition, and um, I hope I'm kind of interested to see maybe more of these sort of behind the scenes looks at at these sorts of movies because mm. they are something that we still look at. Maybe not so much because people love the movies, although I mean some people do. I like the movies from that era still, like the Roman epics, but. More these days, I think we look at them because of the um, the political undertones. Um, because generally, Covardis, The Robe, um, Ben-Hur, Spartacus, they're all seen as being a sort of a message about various things from the time, like, you know, the Cold War relations or relations with fascists or, or um, even relations between America and Britain. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of potential going on. And, exactly, and yeah. there seems to be like clear analogies to be made mm. about the depiction of of Rome in that time and yeah. what is going on in that context. Absolutely, and I actually I actually went to a really interesting lecture the other day um, on Julius Caesar in film, and um, and the um, the guy who was giving the lecture, Tom Stevenson. Hi, just in case you're listening, <laughs> he was talking about how um, America has such an interesting relationship with Julius Caesar and Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar. Um, and how it crops up um, really interesting points in time. Um, and Caesar is such an interesting character because it does seem to be this anxiety about you know, one man having too much power. Um, and that's constantly something that America seems to be worried about. Well, yeah, well, Hail Caesar doesn't fix that for us. No, because, no, definitely uh, not. Yeah. Eddie Maddox clearly has a lot of power. True, this is true. But, um, yeah, I, I just thought it was interesting, like, the whole <laughs> idea of, yeah, the, the whole... I don't think America is done yet, obviously, with this relationship with Rome. <laughs> no, definitely um, not. And the way and the, and the fears that are engendered by the whole, like, you know, the fall of empire, the, <laughs> the dictator, that sort of thing, that always seems to be sort of present in American um, imagination and therefore in the sort of histories that they construct. Well, um, in the uh, spirit of giving it a review, I'm going to give this film three and a half stars out of five. Nice, nice. Okay, yes, I like this. I like this idea a lot. <laughs> I'm going to give it a four, I think. Yeah, Ooh, impressive. And I did, yes. And that's, that extra half is for Herbie Doyle. <laughs> and you see him with Ray Fiennes. That was classic. Beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff. <laughs> <laughs>